start the IPO the market has been waiting for? Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Jason Moser, and today we're going to dive into Instacart's IPO. Hey, Jason, how you doing? Hey, Deidre, just fine. How about you? I'm good. So my first question for you is: Are you an Instacart guy? You know, I have to admit, I am not. It's not that I am against Instacart or anything. I guess I am still just very much an in-person grocery shopper, mm-hmm. and old habits die hard. I could see myself jumping into that Instacart world at some point, though. It sure looks really convenient. Well, I mean, that's kind of interesting because in their S1, they said uh, 12% of grocery uh, shopping took place online last year. So, and that's lower than other categories. So maybe there's a lot of people out out there like you that are just not interested in doing this. Do you, do you think that's true? I, well, probably to an extent. I mean, I, you know, we've said it before: changing consumer behavior is really difficult. And so yeah. this could be something that it, you know appeals and probably does to an extent. I mean, like I, I look at my kids, for example, and sort of you know the 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 mobile and, and and convenience tools that they use. And this might be something that would you know more easily integrate into their, into their daily lives as they get older. Um, Kind of raised with this being the norm, right? I mean, this is absolutely not the norm for most of us. We just didn't grow up this way, and you kind of get, you know, stuck in in your in your behaviors. I do. I think you know one thing I've always said. Amazon really changed our value system, so to speak, right? And what I mean by that, convenience is far more a priority than it used to be because we have a choice, right? And so now it's not all about just the lowest prices. It's also about convenience. We value our time differently, and so you'll be willing to pay for certain conveniences. And I think that I mean, you know, grocery store grocery shopping isn't the most exciting thing in the world. It can be a time suck. And if you're like me, I tend to go to the grocery store like every day or every other day. I don't. Stock up our kitchen with a week's worth of food, um, and and that's just because I'm never really fully certain what I'm going to make for dinner. And then I also just I'm not really a big fan of waste, and, and it just I don't want that food sitting in there for for long periods of time. Um, but but I, I think that you know this is something where this is a convenience that I think would resonate with consumers. But when you look in this S one. You know, management even even noted this. I mean, they said in in the S one, this transformation will play out over decades. So I think that is encouraging to see that they're looking at it from that perspective, acknowledging the fact that listen, at twelve percent, sure, there's going to be there's going to be some growth opportunity there. But maybe this isn't necessarily the same as something like your electronics or whatever else uh, that you might buy from Amazon just just for convenience sake. And I think the other thing is that people are just more comfortable these days. Doing things virtually, we we grew up shopping in the grocery store, but people today they grew up seeing things online and and expecting them. So I think that's part of it. The other part of it, I think, is that the people are just now more comfortable with having a stranger do stuff for them. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this is this is another double of those like double sided marketplaces. So according to the S one, you've got about seventeen of seven point seven million people. They're ordering deliveries. You've got about six hundred thousand of the shoppers going to the stores and doing the picking. It seems a little bit to me like like a DoorDash. I guess there's some controversy over which is the better gig, but uh, 
Is this an issue of how they manage both sides of this marketplace going forward? Yeah, I mean, the, the delivery side, when it comes to food, the delivery is, is a bit bit of a greater leap of faith, right? I mean, this isn't just pizzas we're talking about. And in, in, in right. many cases, I mean, a lot of people like to go there and kind of just choose from the quality of the produce or, or whatever it may be. And, you know, I, I don't know that this is a job where people enter this line of work thinking this is what they want to do for the rest of their lives, right? I mean, this is probably a job for most that is more of a means to an end. And so, loyalty is probably not a strength, unless unless they're paying for that loyalty, right? And it sounds like it's kind of going in the opposite direction. It sounds like Instacart trying to, to, to whittle down that cost structure a little bit. Um, and so, that's understandable, right? If, if, if you're an employee, you know, you have two choices, and, and, and neither job is really, you know, what you love to do. I mean, if it's just kind of a means to an end, you're you're typically going to go to to the higher paying job, and so uh, it does it does boil down. Uh, unfortunately, in many cases, just two dollars dollars and cents. I, I think you look at a company like this. I mean, there's not a high barrier for learning, right? I mean, I think it's probably a job where you can jump in there and learn it pretty quickly. So even if employee turnover is high, you know, I don't think there are necessarily prohibitive costs that come with that turnover, right? I mean, in integrating new employees into that network and integrating new shoppers and other it was probably fairly easy. I, I kind of liken it maybe to, to Uber drivers or whatnot. I mean, you know, it's just it's something where you're going to see some of that employee turnover, and, and that's just the nature of the gig. Maybe I don't know because the way I'm thinking about it is, it's so easy to get it wrong. And like, there's been all these like memes with like, you know, I asked by a, by Instacart person for a substitution for bananas, and they came up with peppers or something like yeah. that. So there is a little bit more, I think, of a, of an art to it, maybe than 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 DoorDash. But I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there is some judgment that comes into play here, and in, in, in there are going to be some people who are probably a little bit more thoughtful about. You know what they're putting into these baskets for for the, yeah. for the shoppers, right? I mean, so so yeah, I absolutely can see that. It, it is it is uh, it, it is a job that does still require some thought and consideration because again, you know, you're talking about groceries, and this isn't just you're not ordering a pizza. I mean, you're typically coming with a basket of twenty, thirty, or forty different items. You kind of you kind of want what you want, and and if it's yeah. a bad experience, if it's a consistently bad experience, if you're getting that order and it's and it's not really the stuff that you want, well then maybe you kind of say, well, there's a reason why I didn't do this online grocery shopping thing, and that's why, and I'm just going to go back to doing it in person. And then really, you may not ever get that consumer back. They may not ever really fully trust that process, and 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 so that could be that could be lost business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the other things I think is interesting about the S one is that. Yes, the delivery part is a big part of the business, but another huge part of it is the ad platform. It's like thirty percent of the revenue, and you know we've seen this the ad, the importance of ads. So like we see it with like the streamers, like a Netflix or Disney Plus, but also with Amazon and Walmart, especially Walmart. Instacart has this big opportunity here. They've got that captive audience. They've got the grocery brands. They've got they say they've got over fifty five hundred brands, and so this is. This is an important part of the business, but it's super cyclical. I mean, we've seen that recently with with other companies getting hurt by that cyclicality. So, how does that factor into how you think about Instacart? Well, I think it's a natural fit. I mean, I would be disappointed if they weren't pursuing the advertising opportunity oh, yeah. because it feels like a very natural fit for a business like this. Particularly when you think about how many brands they have on that platform and the brand relationships they have with companies like Campbell's and Nestle and Pepsi and whatnot. So, to me, you know, I mean, they they could even 
quantify it, right? They in the S one they know that on average that their ads deliver more than a fifteen percent incremental sales lift, and in some cases they say even twice that for brand partners like Campbell's and Pepsi and whatnot. So, so to me, it's again, I kind of think of a company. I go back to Uber because I think this is this is very similar in that in that in that regard. Uber with a burgeoning ad business, and I think it's very it's a very natural fit for that platform as they become more things than just you know a company that gets you from point A to point B, right? I think. The key for Instacart in regard to that cyclicality ultimately is just making the business not so fully dependent on it. And I think we're seeing signs again that they are trying to do more than just grocery delivery and in advertising, which is encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned Pepsi. Part of the story here, uh, they're 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 in line. They want to purchase 175 million of the Series A preferred stock. So. Clearly, they believe in the business. Yeah, well, I mean, they are a brand partner, and then that means they likely have some anecdotal evidence to to the value of the platform. And, and taking an ownership stake in the business could certainly help in, in a number of ways for them to learn more about uh, their customers, what customers want, uh, product placement, product ideas, and whatnot. So uh, it, it sounds like uh, it sounds like maybe they're taking advantage of a little bit of their institutional knowledge of this business, and that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it feels like a positive sign to me. And so the interesting thing here is this company is going uh, going public. They're a little older. They're they're profitable. I mean, they they may or may not stay that way. But I think they have some advantages over some of the other IPOs recently. Um, thinking about trying to compare them to uh, to DoorDash and that journey. Uh, yeah, I mean, in regard to profitability, I mean, it, it is one of those things. It's nice to see that you know they they are are going going public without having to sort of convince us of that path to profitability, right? I think that could be that could be a, a big um, a catalyst, right, for a company mm-hmm. like this, particularly in a difficult time right now, where. I mean, we've learned a lot over the last several years with with many of these businesses going public that probably really shouldn't have gone public, or at least at the time, right? They yeah. need a little bit more time to sort of mature. It does look like in this case, I mean, Instacart is in a position where the business is well established and they've painted a very good picture of the potential market opportunity. Now it's just a matter of 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 execution and capital allocation. Yeah, definitely. Well, I was thinking about this this weekend, um, looking through the S1 and thinking about whatever happened to Peapod. Because uh, I was in uh, Wiretown, Massachusetts, uh, late 90s, Peapod, one of the earliest online startups. And they kind of made it through that delivery craze of the early, early aughts when you know everything was being delivered and then none of those businesses survived. Peapod survived, but it you know, Instacart came along and kind of took over. So, is there anything that Instacart can learn from Peapod? Well, it just you know, the first thing that came to mind here because Peapod at its time was extremely revolutionary. Oh yeah, but it was dealing it was dealing with an environment that wasn't really as favorable to, to sort of the tech demands that really um, a business like this requires, right? So, I think they they really started out with a great idea. Um, it was maybe a little bit ahead of its time, just based on on the the tech the tech capabilities that existed, and, and it kind of makes me think of these businesses that were, you know, older businesses that were built on more antiquated technology versus these cloud-first businesses that were built on cloud technology and therefore a bit more nimble and able really to to iterate and grow more quickly. I, th- I think that's probably some of that here, at least with Instacart. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, I mean, it's a company that's taken advantage of technology to to ultimately become more than just a delivery company, right? I mean, they're using. 
this platform ultimately become what they consider a grocery technology company. So it's beyond just delivery. It's beyond just advertising. It's really helping brands figure out what their customers want. It's it's helping grocery stores in regard to analytics and whatnot. So you know, potential opportunities there are are really all over the place thanks to the tech capability today. Yeah, I noticed at the start of the S1, they had the grocery technology company, and I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure. But then as they went through it, I'm sort of like, yeah, I guess so, because it really is, you know, with Peapod, the problem was that they they couldn't bring on the partners, they couldn't scale as fast as they wanted to. Instacart, that the reason they were able to grow so fast is because they had the the infrastructure so they could do that. Yeah, and if you think about Peapod, I mean, the one thing I remember about Peapod is the big trucks. Yes, right, and I mean that's. I mean, we're just we're just in a different place now. Where I mean, you know, the 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 actual getting things from point A to point B, so to speak. I mean, you're not reliant on just these big trucks. I mean, we've got a much larger force of transportation out there that they can leverage, which I think makes a lot of sense. And our expectations are that we get things a lot faster. Yes, too. they are. <laughs> <laughs> World keeps speeding up. Well, you know. IPOs are tricky. They're they're so exciting, but you know, I tend I'm I'm not I'm a little risk averse. So I like to watch from the sidelines. I want to see what's happening with the company. With Instacart, the growth is is good, but maybe slowing. And you know, we talked a little bit about shopper attrition and that two sided marketplace thing. Is there anything that you're watching for, or you want to see within the first year? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned the the growth. Uh, Aspect there. I mean, clearly they benefited from the past three years, but as most yeah. businesses, you know, that was a lot of growth that was pulled forward, and that's now started to to normalize a little bit. And when you look at some of the data there, I mean, the orders, for example, for the six months ended last year to the six months ended this year, essentially flat, right? Gross transaction volume just up four percent. You got to figure inflation probably played some kind of a role in that as well. So it does seem like things are slowing down here. I like you would rather. Kind of sit on the sidelines and watch this thing for a little while. I don't feel a need to jump into um, IPOs, generally speaking, because you know we we know that the enthusiasm is high, and particularly now. I mean, the market's really just just hungry for for a good IPO, and and I think you know this is a business that has a lot of potential, and so I certainly understand all of the enthusiasm behind it. It's still a challenging time, and I think you look at this business and. while it's a relatively proven concept, and we know that management is taking that longer-term view as what they've said in the S1, I'd like to follow leadership and sort of see that they're sticking to those to the to those guns, so to speak. Right? I mean, to see that they are continuing to take that long-term view and to make decisions that are in line with that long-term view, because you know you could see a world where at some point or another, maybe the business is witnessing some challenges or the stock price is witnessing some challenges, and then you start to wonder: Are they going to change their decision making and do some short-term focus things? In order to accommodate for sort of that that voting machine nature of the market in the near term, so so seeing management stick to that long term playbook, I think will be one thing. Um, and then I think also just you know an interesting part of the business is the membership side of the business, right? You get the Instacart Plus product. Um, I think that's a good metric to keep an eye on because as we know with companies like Uber and, and others, and these members really do account for more of the spending for businesses like these. It can be immensely profitable, particularly over time. Yeah. So uh, it, it would be nice to see. Them continue to grow uh, that membership base as time goes on. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about the membership bases that are in companies like like an Uber and Uber Eats, and because it's it's still sort of nascent, but it seems like there there might be real potential. And I think that the thing to watch there is 
we're not going to have multiple memberships to things the same way we might have multiple streamers. We're we're probably going to pick one. If you know, if if I'm a consumer, I'm probably not going to have multiple of these, right? I think that's exactly right. It's either going to be Instacart or it's going to be something else. And ultimately, that's that's one of the advantages that Instacart has here. They've been able to scale so quickly, I mean, having that big of a network. It's going to give them you know a better chance at at delivering on what they say they're going to deliver yeah. on, right? And and that I think ultimately is what people want is they want to they want to know that they're going to be getting what they ordered and they want to get it in a timely fashion and it and it just can't be too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned that the market really wants to see a good IPO. I saw a figure over the weekend of from Equities and quoted in the New York Times, at least 1,400 private tech companies worth a billion. The unicorns, they're all just waiting on the sideline for the right moment to go public. We've seen the CAV IPO, awesome. We've seen the the better IPO, not so awesome. We've got the ARM IPO coming up too. Is is this the moment? Is this is this when the floodgates open? What do you think? I I, I tend to think not. I think the market, while I mean clearly, you know, the, the appetite for for good IPOs is there. You know, we we have also learned a lot over these past few years. I mean, there's a lot of junk that went out there. I mean, you, you look at things like SPACs and how how many companies were were able to go public just via the SPAC structure, for example. A lot of companies that really just shouldn't have gone public at that point. And we and we do know that with private valuations, they oftentimes aren't as efficient, perhaps, as the public valuations. Um, and so, and so while I think this is a good sign, I, I look at those 1,400 or so companies with those billion dollar plus valuations, and I think there's probably still a lot of junk in those as well, so we need to be careful. Yeah, totally agree. Well, thank you for your time today, Jason. Thank you. It was the summer of Taylor Swift, but what does that mean for Live Nation? I sat down with Alicia Alfieri to walk through the ins and outs of the company that concertgoers may hate, but investors might love. Excited to talk to you because this has been the summer of live music and especially Taylor Swift and Beyonce. I mean, my goodness, the Eras Tour, it's not a concert. It's like a phenomenon. It's it's lifting whole city economies. It gets news coverage when when Taylor comes to town. This has been crazy. So it's been good news for for Live Nation, which we're gonna talk about today. It's sort of the company that I think everyone loves to hate, but uh, it's good for them on one level, but it's drawn some attention to the fact that Live Nation and Ticketmaster, they kind of own us. So, what's the background here? The, the uh, Swifties are a little upset sometimes because they can't get tickets. What's going on? Yeah, so so let's recap what happened. So, back in November, Ticketmaster uh, canceled the public ticket sale for Taylor Swift's era, Era's tour. And again, Lots of demand here. I think there was oh, yeah. even a, a small earthquake from all of <laughs> in Seattle. Yeah, yeah. What happened here is that fans were seeing long wait times and other technical issues trying to buy tickets for the pre-sale of the tour. So it looks like to me the biggest culprit here was supply and demand. So Taylor Swift is pretty famous, uh, which is what my eight-year-old nephew told me while we were singing along to one of her songs on Tuesday. And the thing is, he's not wrong. When you have someone or something that resonates with a lot of people, you have a ton of demand for that thing. And in this case, 
the demand was incredible. So 3.5 million fans signed up for the pre-sale, and only 1.5 million actually got a code to enter the sale, while the rest were on a waiting list. Mm -hmm. uh, usually, only 40% of people who get a code will actually show up to buy a ticket. But for Taylor Swift, uh, fans with a code, without a code, everybody logged in to buy tickets, and Live Nation also reported a lot of bot attacks. And these factors caused delays and other tech issues. And I, during the pre-sale, Ticketmaster sold more than 2 million tickets in a single day, which was a record. Um, but fans were, understandably, frustrated, uh, especially when they hopped on over to the secondary or resale ticket market and found tickets for, in some cases, thousands of dollars. So this drove many fans to air their frustrations on Twitter and to lawmakers, which put Live Nation on the radar for several people in Congress. Yeah, that's that's really interesting too. So let's talk about Congress. So one of the complaints too has been the extra fees. This is uh, it's not even a Live Nation issue or ticketing issue. I mean, we see extra fees in like Airbnb and and everything else. But Congress is looking at this. What's going on here? Yeah, so the act, I love the name of this act. It's the Boss Swift Act yes. for Taylor <laughs> Swift is the Swift part. And Bruce Springsteen, of course, is the boss. Uh, so this aims for transparency in ticket pricing with an all-in ticket price that's inclusive inclusive of fees and taxes. This is important because, according to the Government Accountability Office, they found back in 2018 that extra fees were about 27% of the overall price. So that could be a pretty big surprise after you hit the purchase button for tickets. Uh, the legislation also seeks to provide consumers with information on refunds for tickets, as well as the number of tickets being sold, and whether these tickets are new or resold. So I think transparency is usually a good thing, and here it seems like it's an improvement on the consumer experience or the user experience. So I don't really see this as a negative for Live Nation. Um, but transparency is not the same thing as affordability. I think part of the issue here was Live Nation started using what they call a dynamic pricing model, which is they did this in an, as an effort to help get artists more money of the ticket sales. So, ticket buying isn't the only place uh, where we where we have this dynamic pricing. You talked about Airbnb. That's definitely one of the the companies that use this. Also, Uber and mm -hmm. surge pricing. Yeah. So the the model is high demand, higher prices, and like economic principles of supply and demand, you're going to get, as people want more of this thing, the prices are going to go up. The only difference is you have this model that allows them to quickly inform and adjust the prices. Well, and with Taylor Swift tickets, there's not, there's no substitution. You can't get a lesser version of, of Taylor Swift. So there's really kind of nowhere to go. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and the other part of this is not just the fees. That's the one side that the government is looking at. The other side of this is whether or not Live Nation with Ticketmaster is a monopoly, and if so, is it going to be broken up? Because part of the problem is here, you have Ticketmaster, they're selling the tickets, and then you've got Live Nation, they're promoting and they're and they're operating venues. So, if you're an investor in Live Nation, like it seems like a really great business now, but is this a big concern? 
It's a fair question. I think it depends on your thesis and who you are as an investor. So, Live Nation is a top dog in a lot of the business that surrounds concerts. So, uh, it's estimated that they're the largest live entertainment company, the largest producer of live music concerts, and the largest live entertainment ticketing sales company. And that's a lot of largest. And we haven't even <laughs> talked. We haven't even talked about the venues yet, right? Uh, if your thesis hinges on Live Nation being the biggest across many aspects of the concert space, I think it's easy to be afraid of the threat of the government potentially coming to split up the company. But I would say, don't get too ahead of yourself here. First, it's an awful big if that we're talking about. A lot of things have to ha have to happen before we get to that point. Also, remember, this is hardly the only company that's been called monopolistic and faced sure. threats of being broken up. And I think maybe the most important, if your fears are realized and the government splits up a company that you own, would that actually be a bad thing? So the answer is, as Jim Gillies would say, it depends. Right? If you're a fan of Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, then you know that special situations like divestitures or perhaps even breaking up a company could be an opportunity for investors and for the companies because it could potentially allow the business segments to be freed up to become the best versions of themselves, <laughs> potentially. But every situation is different and it really depends. Yes, I mean, there's a lot of things that could happen. You could have two separate companies with a spinoff. You could have someone else taking over. Of course, there would probably the government would probably get involved there too. But there's a lot of options that that could happen there. Yeah, and you know what? If again, it also depends on who you are as an investor. If you're not a fan of Live Nation or companies that have really cornered a market, you might not be interested in holding a stock like this, and that's totally okay. It's your own individual journey. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I find surprising about Live Nation, I study real estate. This is one of those stealth real estate companies, you know, kind of like McDonald's is a stealth real estate company. I, I love these. According to their last 10K, they own 172 venues in the US, 99 venues internationally. So if you're an investor, do you think of this as a real estate company to some extent? Well, they do have a pretty big footprint uh, in the venue space, and some of these venues are pretty well known too, uh, like the Fillmore in San Francisco or the House of Blues venues. And for me, what's important here is this feeds into the idea of being everything concerts, the ticketing, the promotion, and the owning of venues. And this creates a powerful flywheel effect for the business, which means that the success in one area of your business helps to fuel other areas. So, more shows means more tickets sold, means more fans at shows, uh, and more things being bought at these shows. And Live Nation likely makes more per fan at the venues that they own themselves. So, it's all part of that. Uh, flywheel equation. Yeah, the flywheel for me is fascinating because you're right. It's not tickets. It's ju not just tickets. There's sponsorships. There's advertising, which is bigger and bigger. They've also got some sneaky ancillary ways to make money beyond tickets. So there's like there's a fast lane pass, sort of like with Disney, where it gets you in, gets you in faster. Maybe you get other add-ons. There's meet and greets and and little like fan add-ons. There's all sorts of things that you can sort of make money, especially when you've got. Of something like a Taylor Swift or a Beyonce or you know any anybody with a big fan base, it's you know gives gives them a little more money and gives 
uh, Live Nation, it sounds like maybe a lot more money. So, do you factor that in too? Yeah. So, so this is another part of the flywheel, this ancillary spend, and it's you know it's so easy to focus on the ticketing aspect of Live Nation and forget all about the opportunity when fans are actually at the concert. And there are a few ways to make money here, like you talked about, right? You could sell concert goers premium experiences and other ups, upsells. And you could also sell advertisers access to those fans' attentions, right? They're a captive audience. Um, but the growth here in these ancillary revenues really depends on the growth in concerts and events. Again, it's part of the flywheel, but it's one that requires balance because there isn't unlimited potential here, right? Uh, you wouldn't want to go to a concert where ads are ultimately detracting from your experience, right? Like if there were commercials in between songs, <laughs> that would be terrible. That would not be good. <laughs> yes, so everything in balance, but it is definitely an interesting way for them to make money. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about the CEO, Michael Rapino. So, he's this kind of, you know, he's a promoter. He's definitely a promoter kind of guy. He and he would like to be paid for it. Uh, he had a $139 million pay package that was voted down by shareholders, partly because it didn't quite have the alignment with long-term performance. That was a non-binding vote. Uh, his pay is at discretion of the shareholders, but he is one of the most highly paid CEOs. I mean, he's doing a great job, but he's getting paid a lot. Yes, he is. And I think this is like a, a secret advertisement for looking at a proxy statement and also voting, if you are a shareholder, yeah. um, during the proxy elections. It is your way of telling the company how you feel about specific issues. Um, so, while the vote is non-binding, it's possible that the company will take notice of this. Uh, sometimes you don't even need a majority. Sometimes if you just have enough voters saying that they don't approve of this, it could kind of embarrass the company into redesigning a compensation package. And by the way, the ratio of Rapino's compensation to that of his median employee was over 5,000 to 1. So Oof. It's a big number. Yeah. But we should also note here, and I think you you had mentioned it, that Rapino was the CEO throughout the company's struggles during the pandemic, and that he, he did take a pay cut during COVID. So, he has done a good job. But I think the question here is really, can executive compensation impact your thesis? Can it break your thesis? And I think it's possible if something egregious is happening in compensation or with the company's governance. I think in general, when you're analyzing the company, it's a good idea to look at what executive comp is based on. So, Charlie Munger says, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. So, according to Live Nation's proxy, 63% of Rapino's uh, 2022 salary was based on performance. And one of the factors here is adjusted operating income. And always, whenever something's adjusted, oh, yeah. <laughs> it means it excludes uh, items, and, and some of those items are important. So, the things that this excludes, uh, it includes stock-based, or excludes, rather, stock-based comp, depreciation, amortization, and other items. And it's 63% isn't, isn't bad, and, and, and this adjusted operating income isn't, isn't bad, but it's not the most impressive way to, to uh, incentivize executive um, performance either. I think as investors, we like to see a lot of management's compensation tied to performance that drives the business. And I think with when someone's getting paid a lot too, you always have to ask yourself, would it be the same company without that person in charge? Yeah, absolutely. 
and I, I am not sure it would be the same company without him in charge. So, I, I don't love the the high price here, but I do think he's worth it to some extent. Oh yeah, and again, he did he did see the company through that storm of COVID. Yeah. So that is massive. Well, let's talk about that storm of COVID because for a time we all thought, well, we're just going to go see concerts in the metaverse. This is we're just going <laughs> to put on our Oculus Quest or whatever Vision Pro or whatever's coming next. We're going to want to do that. But that didn't happen. Instead, everybody has rushed out and seen everybody this summer. It's not just the you know, it's not just the headliners. Everybody's going to festivals. Everybody's seeing everyone. Live music is back so much. And Rapino, you know, in the earnings call, you know, he said he doesn't see it slowing down through 2024. I, you know, I don't see it slowing down either, based anecdotally on what I'm seeing from from people in in my life, but. Given that maybe we might see a recession, who knows at this point, maybe a little baby recession, how should we think about consumer behavior? Yeah, well, I would say with any investments, there's always risks, right? And a decrease in consumer spending or a potential recession could potentially impact people's ability to afford those tickets, right? And we have seen a shift in consumer spending away from the things that we bought during the pandemic and toward experiences, right? And concerts are definitely an experience. But again, there is the risk that belt tightening will impact someone's ability to afford going to a concert. There could also be a concern that with all of the revenge experience uh, spending that's happening after COVID, that consumers can burn themselves out and not as many people will be interested in concerts in a, in a year or two. So far, that doesn't appear to be the it doesn't appear to be the case. So Live Nation says it has a strong pipeline of artist shows for the next year, and that uh, confirmed future shows are up relative to the same point last year. And also Statista, uh, which provides market data and statistics, is forecasting a 5% compounded annual growth rate through 2027 for revenues for global music events. So we do think we're going to continue to have concerts. And also, don't forget, it's it's a truly unique experience. It's It's one of those things there are very few things that you have to be there for the event to really get the true experience, right? It's live sports and and live music. So I think there's always going to be a a special glow to concerts. Yeah, I I think that's right. And I mean, the good news is this is not Taylor Swift's retirement tour. No. (laughs) And she's going international, and international is a big part of Live Nation. So it seems seems like positive tailwinds here. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Thanks for your time today, Alicia. Thanks. Glad to be here. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.